Hello and welcome to this very special Bridget Brophy podcast. Today we're celebrating a novelist, critic, dramatist, campaigner and activist and indeed so much more who deserves to be much better known than she currently is. She published her first collection of short stories, The Crown Princess, and other stories in 1953 and over the next 35 years or so she wrote an enormous amount of material in a uh, very wide variety of genres and we're going to be celebrating her life and work um, on the podcast today and explaining just why she deserves to be more widely recognised and indeed her ideas taken uh, more seriously. I'm really grateful that joining me today we have uh, Jerry Kimber. Hello Jerry. Hello, hello, good to be here. Thanks. Jerry's visiting professor at the University of Northampton and she's co-editor of Catherine Manfield Studies and the chair of the International Catherine Mansfield Society. She's the divisor and series editor of the four-volume Edinburgh edition of the collected works of Catherine Mansfield. And at the moment, she's working with uh, her colleague, Claire Davison, um, preparing for a new four-volume edition of Mansfield's Letters for Edinburgh University Press, but also, of course, for today's podcast, um, talking about Brophy and the collection that she's just co-edited, Bridget Brophy, avant-garde writer, critic and activist. I'm sure Jerry will be talking about that later. Also joined by uh, Jonathan Gibbs. Hello, Jonathan. Hi there, Miles. Hi. Uh, Jonathan's a novelist and critic and also a senior lecturer in creative writing at St Mary's University, Twickenham. His second novel, last year's The Large Door, was explicitly inspired by Brophy's novel The Snowball, and he'll be talking about that later. And he also curates the online short story project A Personal Anthology and is also a recent cover star of the, the Times Literary Supplement. Yes. And finally, we're... Um, excited to uh, welcome Kate Levy. Hello Kate. Hello. Hi. Kate's the daughter of Bridget Brophy and Michael Levy so we're really excited to have her with us and she writes about her parents and is dedicated to keeping Brophy's legacy alive and one of her primary ways of doing that is both through Twitter and she also runs the website BridgetBrophy.com. Welcome to you all. Kate should we start with you? Could you give us um Kind of some some background. Tell, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, about your mother, and tell us about tell us some things that perhaps we wouldn't know. Um, okay, thank you. Well, um, the person that I knew was, um, I think, rather different to perhaps um, the sort of public, pu the public Bridget Brophy. Um, my mother was loyal, and uh, she was loving, extremely quiet, um, a rather contained person. Not perhaps demonstrative. Um, she was incredibly gentle and considerate. Uh, she was also, which I think perhaps isn't known widely enough, exquisitely shy. And this made her sometimes appear um, socially awkward, even perhaps mildly eccentric. Um, my father, Michael, who was uh, extremely um, adept with people and r rather voluble by nature told me that he was sometimes absolutely astounded by my mother's capacity to stay quiet when something was evidently expected of her and this was part of the person that I knew and loved as an incredibly intense person um, she she just had um, an uncommon intensity uh, often, I think, generated by some kind of fear socially, but people read it, I think, sometimes as um, a coldness or um, a, a, a kind of hostility. She was intensely cerebral. 
and she was occasionally rather unworldly. Um, as a child, I used to be annoyed that she didn't seem to sew and cook and shop for me as my friend's mothers <laughs> often did. She also came famously to my primary school to meet me one day with one navy blue shoe and one black shoe. And this embarrassed me so badly <laughs> that I felt I, I really was never going to get over it. And there are arguments to say that I perhaps haven't. Um, she was very seldom angry and I, I hardly ever saw her um, raise an eyebrow in anger. She never rose, raised her voice and she, she, she didn't have any kind of tantrums. The, the, one memorable time when she was angry was when somebody at school told me that she wrote dirty books. And when I reported this at home, I saw that this had absolutely incensed her. Um, and really, finally, for this bit, just to say, um, I gradually realized that she was emotionally vulnerable in, in a nice way. I, I, I mean, in the sense of not being um, cold um, or impenetrable. You, you know, she, she was open and vulnerable uh, um, in an emotional sense, where, of course, I think I would claim intellectually she was none of those things. And your sort of first impressions of her as a writer, when, 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 do you remember the first time that you read something that she'd written? Well, it wasn't really all that long ago because I spent a great deal of my youth rejecting anything <laughs> to do with writing or reading or, you know, lit literacy, literature. Um, I, I really did. And actually, to be serious for a moment, um, my parents presented to me two extremely tall trees um, in whose shadow to grow up and um, it, it, that wasn't necessarily quite as easy as, as, as people may think and um, they gave me an incredibly happy and secure childhood and part of that was they gave me the right to reject very much interest in anything they were doing. Um, as a result I'm not only the world's worst read person but because my father was an art historian I also can't recognize any paintings whatsoever <laughs> so it, I, you know I am in that regard a total failure but I, I'm, I've come to her work um, s you know re really seriously rather than just reading on a cursory level I've come to it r really only since my father's death about 10 or 11 years ago mm. I mean, and, I, and for those that don't know we, we would say that um, your father was the uh, director of the National Gallery wasn't he for, for many years yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously growing up in a, in a very intellectual household with uh, I'm sure lots uh, yes. of lots of lots of different people coming in and out, different guests. Not you know, so much. There was no there was, pardon, there was no sort of um, sense of a salon as such. They were very contained and um, uh, sort of circumscribed people. You know, they had a few special people who um, were really important friends, um, and uh, there, there wasn't a huge amount of um, you know social going on really. Mm. I suppose the um, the people that she knew were from the um, the public lending rights campaign that she was involved with, as well. Uh, yes, yes, and yeah. um, uh, my mother spent um, most of her time working. And um, when one looks at her public persona and um, her her um, her legacy, her you know her her written legacy, it, it isn't surprising because she she worked um, on an absolutely incredible scale and was in. Um, extraordinarily versatile and she turned her hand from plays 
to novels, to non-fiction, literary criticism um, was extremely influential and in fact at times rather notorious for her outspoken views. Um, and um, none of that was achieved without her working at it. And she, she worked in two senses. She, she sat at her desk and wrote a lot in, um, in her novel, um, Palace Without Chairs. She, she describes a character as hacking away at the naked, cold face of thoughts. And that's exactly what she did day after day after day. But um, much, uh, much to my surprise, I've discovered that she also worked on her own personality. Her persona and her personality were her own creation. And uh, that, that, of course, was, was, was not easily achieved either. And I have a bit more to say about that um, in reference to one particular work of hers. Um, but yeah, uh, I, there wasn't a huge deal of uh, coming and going in, in the sort of what you might think of as the typical sort of Hampstead intellectual household way mm. of who's coming to dinner tonight. It really wasn't much like that. Yeah, I, I suppose the looking at her bibliography, the, the amount of uh, material that she produced, you would have thought that actually she would have had to have an enormous amount of, um, of, of peace and quiet to, to write, you know, the, uh, yes, the number of words she did, yeah. She, uh, she did a bunny part, apart from, you know, her only child interrupting her a great Of deal. course, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Jonathan, do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, your first experience of, uh, of Bridget and how she came to be such an important influence um, on your recent work? Yes, thank you, uh, Miles. Um, I think the first time I came across Bridget Brophy was when I was probably in my late 20s, mid late 20s, um, and I was staying at my aunt and uncle's house and they were very well read. And I just picked up a copy of Hack and Feller's Ape, um, which is Brophy's first novel published in 1953. And it's a brilliantly intelligent, brief, um, spiky, uh, beautifully written book um, that really captivated me. And I think I read about half of it. I was only staying there um, a, a day or two. And it was probably about 10 years later that I probably found a copy in a secondhand bookshop or something and remembered it and picked it up and read it. And at that point, I was, you know, working as a writer and hoovering up influences. And so I very quickly found everything else of hers that um, I could to read. Um, and King of a Rainer Country, Flesh, The Finishing Touch, The Snowball, these were all books that I found absolutely uh, brilliant, insightful, spiky, sexy, fiercely intelligent. She takes no prisoners. And I, it's so fascinating listening to Kate talk about her as a private person because I do find her intimidating as a writer. She, she expects the reader to keep up, both in her novels and in her nonfiction. Um, there is no attempt to draw the reader softly and safely through an argument she has she knows what she thinks and she wants to get to the point as quickly as possible um, so she has high expectations of readers um, and I found that really stimulating and I, I read all, all of her novels um, I've read her non-fiction as well uh, most of it not all of it there's so much of it but really the more I read, the more my uh, love her, for her as a writer focused around three books that she wrote in the 1960s, 
Flesh in 1962, The Finishing Touch in 1963, and The Snowball was published in 1964. And that's an incredible um, achievement to produce those three books in three years. None, none of them are hugely long, but they are all utterly astonishing, beautifully stimulating books. Um, and The Snowball particularly was one that really stayed with me and it is a, a brief novel set over one evening one night um at a new year's party in the early 60s and it is a sort of jeu d'esprit on um don giovanni and the, the mozart opera that that brophy loved so much in which a flirtation takes place between uh, a 40-ish woman and a masked man and it is about what people can expect from each other in terms of love and intelligence and whether it is enough to find somebody that is your match and your equal sexually and intellectually or if we demand if, if we require more than that and I, I love this book so much that I was I'd published my first novel at this point and I was actually putting together a uh, a paper for an academic conference about Brophy, um, which is, is now, um, you know, born the fruit of this this great um, book that, that Jerry's been involved with. And um, I was just thinking, why do people not publish books like this anymore? Short, sharp, brilliant, sexy, funny. Um, and I thought, well, I'll, I, I want to write a book like Bridget Brophy and... In, in a moment of inspiration, I, I realised I had a, a short story um, set at an academic conference that I could expand into a short novel. And I thought, let's do that. Let's write, let's expand this story as if, as if I was Bridget Brophy. Um, and because it's set at an academic conference, it's set over 24 hours as well. And lots of intelligent people talking intellectually and flirting with each other and being serious and thinking about mortality and all the things that that Brophy does so well so that really led into the writing of my second novel The Large Door um, which has got a an epigraph from Brophy the snowball and also an epigraph from Iris Murdoch as well. How closely were they aligned I suppose I'm asking? Largely it was an attempt to be as good as Brophy, to be right, as intelligent, yeah. to be as as serious about sex and desire and mortality. But I must admit, there is a, a very practical um, element of the novel that I that I stole, which was that I was looking at this short story, which was about eight thousand words, and I was thinking, right, I've got to um, you know turn this into a novel. And then I, one aspect of the snowball is that although the, this central couple are the the main characters in the book there is a much younger couple as well who are flirting with each other and um eventually have sex in a in a car outside in the snow and you get this uh secondary character's um diary her diary entries that she's running away to um to write in the middle of this this new year's party uh and so i took that idea of a secondary character looking at the same events from a very different younger perspective so i introduced a second character who was a uh, rather than a sort of established star academic in her 40s as my main character was 
she is younger and she is a sort of postgrad um, student and um, you get her view of the of the stuff going on as well so that really helped in terms of turning a short story into a novel I was like oh you know I can use that as well but broadly it was the sort of the, the, the setting the environment the sensibility and um, the idea of trying to keep that Eros and Thanatos life and death flirting with each other uh, all the way through the story. Yeah, and um, I, I read it last year, really enjoyed it, and uh, and, and, that, and that really comes through, actually. Yeah, so, um, of course, my, my interest was piqued by the, the inclusion of both um, Brophy and Murdoch at the, uh, at the beginning, but you can see, not just, the, I think you, you can see the influences, but you can see also that it's very much your own work. So um, if people want to... Um, um, Obviously, read the snowball, and then you can read um, the large door. And the large mm. door's out with uh, who's it with now? Boiler House Press. Yes, that's right. And you, and um, yeah, um, if you're listening to the podcast on SoundCloud, you can find all the details for um, all the books that we've been discussing, and including Jonathan's book. And uh, just underneath, there'll be a link if you want to have a look and um, and buy it. Jerry, um, let's think now about um, the academic reception of. Um, Brophy's work. Um, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about how you came into um, reading reading Brophy, and 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 then a, a, about the uh, the new collection that's just come out? That'd be Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Well, I came to um, Bridget Brophy um, as a young scholar in the nineteen um, eighties when I started my PhD, and was looking for articles, uh, you know, things to read, and and there was this article that uh, Brophy had published in December nineteen sixty two on Mansfield. Um, which just blew me away. Uh, you know, the most searingly intelligent and perspicacious mm. article I had read at, up till that point on Mansfield. And it was just listening to Kate just now because um, made me realise that she obviously was misconstrued and misrepresented both as a personality and as a writer in so many ways because Kate mentioned that she had this uncommon intensity which was sometimes... Uh, perceived as coldness and hostility and I think this appears sometimes in her non-fiction writing when um, you know this article that she wrote on Mansfield and the next one that she wrote which is also on which was on Colette um, where she actually put a little um, comment at the bottom of the page saying this and the piece on Colette which here follows this is in her book um, uh, Don't Never Forget one mm. of the essays where she said, has been construed by a few of my readers as a tax. I do not know whether the blame lies with the propensity I have observed some people have to assume that anything approaching analysis must be destructive, or with myself for writing in a gruff tone of voice, um, et cetera, et cetera. But she actually says, as a matter of fact, both Mansfield and Colette are literary personalities towards whom I feel nothing short of idolatry. Well, um, well uh, when I read that, because I'm a very battered old copy of this book that was published in the 1960s, and I thought, well, I never read it as an attack. To me, it was just such a brilliant article. Demonstrate how, how brilliant it was, um, especially um, as it was written so close to um, John Middleton Murray's death and his uh, control of his wife's personality to the point of hagiography, really, after her um, untimely death in 1923. So that's how I first came to her. Um, and to me, initially, she was um, a non-fiction writer. It was her essays that I devoured and particularly appreciated. And it was only later that I came to her novels. I haven't read them all. I don't claim to be a Brophy scholar like yourself or, um, or Jonathan. 
But to me, um, one of my favourite novels, um, and it's still read, and I've read it several times now, is The King of a Rainy Country, which mm. is only the second novel that she published in um, 1956, so very early. And um, I also, I know it's been recently um, uh, reprinted, thank goodness. And um, Ali Smith, the, the well-known um, novelist, who also is a, quite coincidentally a Mansfield addict, and he possibly knows more about Mansfield even than I do. And we, as a result of that, have become good friends. But she said um, in, a, in a, I think it was some blurb on the back of one of the editions, that the book, this was a pitch perfect novel, an inquiry into romanticism and disaffection is witty, unexpectedly moving, and a revelation again of Brophy's originality. Entirely of its time, it remains years ahead of itself, even now nearly 60 years later, in its emotional range and its intellectual and formal blend of stoicism and sophistication. Well, I couldn't say, I couldn't say better than that, the way I feel about The King of a Rainy Country. And I also thought it was so interesting that um, Ali Smith, who admires uh, Mansfield so much and Muriel Spark and has written on both so uh, well, also has a deep fascination and understanding of um, the work of Bridget Brophy, which really, but which really resonates with me. And I think, um, you know, if you love one, then it, it does follow that you love the other because Brophy understood Mansfield in a way that I think no one, almost no one else of her generation did. Yes, at, the, at that particular time, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, looking now, I've got, I've got um, Don't Never Forget in front of me. And of course, there are more collections, aren't there? There's Baroque and Roll, there's Reeds. I've got a very battered copy of Baroque and Roll as well, yes. Yeah. But, you know, the, 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 the scope of the material that she covers yeah, and the, the, the people, you know, not, not just people, that, people of her own generation and, uh, and maybe a generation or two before, but going, you know, right the way back oh, to Shakespeare and before, yeah. I mean, anyone who wants to know about, you know, who wants to, uh, uh, to read a, a fresh take on Jane Austen. Read the article in Don't Never Forget on, on Jane Austen. I mean, and she, it's always been a bugbear of mine. This again, I just feel so closely allied to Brophy in so many ways, but she really takes umbrage at the fact that Jane Austen, you know, is revered to the extent that, you know, when people refer to her, they refer to her as well, they certainly did in the 1950s and 60s, as Miss Austen. Mm. And she said, well, why? Why Miss Austen? And even more, and then, because she is so intelligent, she says, and in any case, you can't call her Miss Austen because it's not the correct terminology. <laughs> it's only the first daughter of a family that is called Miss Austen. And, of course, it was um, Cassandra uh, Austen was older than, than her sister Jane. And thereafter, she should be Miss Jane Austen. Yes. Um, yeah. Thereafter, that you know, but it's little things like that, and it just—I mean—that the first time I read that, it made me laugh out loud, and I thought because I've always had a horror. Lots of early books on Mansfield, you know, where she was um, called Miss Mansfield, and I just thought how Mansfield would have hated that, um, and um, and then you know, but there was Brophy, but even before me, saying it's just so wrong, you know, why aren't why are we treating? And it's a way, it's the sort of that why are we treating women differently? Because you wouldn't call you know, Mr. So-and-so, who, whichever author it is, Mr. Dickens, he's just Dickens. Yeah, but, um, but it's Miss Austen. It's such a brilliant article. She was so ahead of her time, I think, 
in the way she approached these subjects. Yeah, and of course, you know, quite often if you read literary criticism for the 50s, from the 50s and 60s, it can seem very staid, but Brophy's exactly. doesn't at all. No, exactly. And, the, yeah. and because of their, you know, even the way that, you know, the nomenclature of these, of the way that they are, these people are called, and Brophy wasn't having any of it. Absolutely. Um, Jerry, do you want, let, 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 should we go back to um, King of the Rainy Country then? Because I, I think it's a good, really good place to start for people that have never picked up um, a Brophy novel before. Um, I, I just think it's a, it's a really good place to start um, for people that, you know, just coming, coming to a fresh. Just before, it's divided into parts and just at the end of part one, um, it, it, the story is about um, impoverished bohemianism, young Londoners just after the war, um, and this um, protagonist, Susan, who works for a very dubious bookseller, um, whether he's dealing in um, sort of erotica, um, it, it's, it's, um, it's all a bit sort of suspect. But she's in love with a man called Neil, who's um, obsessed with the memory of another girl, um, Cynthia, a, 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 a rangy beauty, but she's, sorry, she is obsessed with a schoolgirl friend. Um, and uh, together, her, Susan and Neil discover that Cynthia is now really well known um, uh, and is due at a film festival. And so, and they go on this journey. They somehow manage to get themselves jobs as sort of travel uh, reps. Um, and they, they go to Venice. It's a, there's some wonderful descriptions of Venice in the novel. Um, and it's just a, a, a wonderful story about their, the way that they, they shift their loyalties, their own love for each other, their love towards Cynthia. What happens, I won't give the denouement in case people haven't read it and want to read it, but it's, um, there is betrayal in the novel, there's enlightenment and a lot of growing up. Um, it's a really easy novel to read. Um, not all of her novels are easy, as I'm sure um, you would agree. Mm. But, you know, being one of her early ones, it's what I would call deceptively easy. I mean, there are so many layers to this novel. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's just one of my favourites. But, I mean, I can just pick a, a passage. So here she is. Towards This is the last section of, of part one. We took our belongings by taxi to Tanya's. Pile them in the bedroom, she said. They'll be quite safe. Tanya will take care of them. There's just one thing I want to look out, I said. This is Susan. I opened my trunk and found the box where I kept old letters and mementos. Neil leaned over my shoulder and looked at some of the letters. You certainly did collect men, he said. Tanya said, don't laugh at our little vanities. I picked out a silk rose. Is that the one Cynthia gave you, Neil asked. Are we taking it with us? I handed it to him. Yes, he took it. It has faded. He folded it small and put it away in his wallet. Um, the reason I'm, I chose that passage is because there's um, a wonderful story by Mansfield called Carnation, um, and it's about two school friends in a French class. It's very covertly sexual. Um, I've written about it before where um, there's a sense in a way that one of the girls is actually having an orgasm, um, uh, which is demonstrated by the, uh, the French master and his the way that the, the, the crescendo of of noise that builds up but I just when I the relationship between Cynthia and Susan to me 
and I can't prove it, but I know that Brophy loved Mansfield and, and loved her stories, is that it was, um, there is a reference there to Mansfield's story Carnation in this uh, glimmer How interesting. Of, of yeah. a rose. Um, in the story, it's a carnation um, and, um, and it's a memory, it's a souvenir tendre. Um, and Brophy brings that into her story, The King of a Rainy Country. Mm. I think we, in, certainly in, in a number of her novels, there are echoes of other works of art. I mean, obviously, explicitly, explicitly within a snowball, and I'm, I'm sure Jonathan's going to talk about that in, in, a, in a little while, because, of course, you know, she, she admired, loved, indeed, uh, Mozart and wrote Mozart the Dramatist. Um, yeah. but, but you can see the, the influence of uh, Ronald Furbank, of course, in... Um, Absolutely. Finishing Touch. In fact, the, the moment you were talking about there reminds me very much of the bee sting in uh, Infinishing Touch. <laughs> but um, but there, there's so many others, of course. There's Beardsley, that she, she writes two books about Beardsley. Absolutely, yep. And, 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 and going back to, of course, that, the, the um, Prancing Novelist by, um, on Furbank um, is, a, is a, a, a doorstop, not just a biography, but a, a, a doorstop examination of, of, um, of, of Furbank and, and, and the, the novel itself, which is yes, a, a one, wonderful creation. It was, I, you know, it's just a book that I would wholeheartedly recommend, especially for people coming to Brophy for the first time, um, because I think, obviously, we all develop as, as writers, but I think um, The King of the Rainy Country is as a starting point, really, for um, discovering her work. It's youthful, um, it's fascinating, it's laugh-out-loud funny in places. Yeah. I mean, there's a coachload of American tourists that um, she and Neil end up in charge of. I mean, really, it just bellyache, made me bellyache with laughter the first time I read it. But it's also very poignant and moving. And um, I just think it's, you know, for someone who was quite young when she wrote the story, I mean, she was born in 1929, it was wrote in 50, written, sorry, written in 1956. She's maths I can't do, but she wasn't old. And um, I think it's, a, 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 you know, a real achievement, a real mm. achievement. Yeah, it was certainly, it was the first one I ever, I ever read, actually. And, and it, in fact, given to me by Kate, um, okay. which, which is, yeah, which is a very, very kind gesture. Um, but of course, not 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 just fiction, but um, drama as well. Kate, I know you've you've picked a little bit from um, Brophy's only only play, um, The Burglar. Um, again, not very well known. But tell tell us about that. Uh, thank you. Well, um, The Burglar was on stage in London, uh, London's West End, very briefly in 1967, and uh, I actually went to a performance of it, and um, I, I sat and laughed, although I wasn't always quite sure why I was laughing, but along with the audience that was laughing. But it had a terribly short run and was absolutely slated by the critics. And um, the following year, I think I'm right in saying 1968, um, the, the play was published and um, my mother wrote a preface to the play. It's called a preface in Shavian style it's it's uh, shaving in length and and form. Um, it is a complete rebuttal of all the charges um, leveled at her about her play. Or or to be fair, um, one could say things that she thought were leveled at her as criticisms of her play. Um, she often said that she was a playwright first and foremost, and. Um, I only knew about this play, The Burglar, and one radio play called The Waste Disposal Unit. 
but um, in the papers that I inherited, I found three or four unpublished plays by her, which are absolutely marvellous. And um, I think she was actually, to a large extent, a playwright first and foremost. She liked the, the structure and the form um, of the play. But I wanted to concentrate really on this, um, this preface that she, she wrote, because it's, it's nearly as long as the play in terms of, of pages in this edition. And um, she was so badly hit uh, by the poor reception of, of this first um, West End play. Um, she, she, she did say, she did promise that she'd write another play. And although she, she did write other plays, as I discovered, I don't think any, anybody was interested. She gives us in this preface, a, a real um, insight into her very deeply personal psyche. Her, her, her layout in this preface, is all, it almost amounts to a sort of psycho-autobiography. I, I find it very interesting. I don't know if, if other people will, but she doesn't, she's not a novelist who talks an, an enormous amount, a writer, I should say, who talks an enormous amount about herself, but this is a real exposition of her experiences and her thoughts, as well as being her way of hitting back at the critics who didn't like um, her play. Um, in 1948, she got sent down from Oxford, and she doesn't refer to this explicitly, but I do believe that this is the crisis um, in her personal life that she, she is referring to here, when she says in the preface to The Burglar, I reformed, quite literally reformed, my personality not out of reformist zeal, but because I entered circumstances where the relentlessness inherent in reality pressed in on me so hard that I began to disintegrate. In a dark crisis of my personal life, the constituents of my personality were broken down like the constituents of a caterpillar inside the chrysalis case. I had either to abdicate from existence or to try to reassemble myself as a butterfly. I found that quite striking because I, mm. I think she did extremely well and turned herself into that butterfly. I, I do know that um, the, the result really of her crisis at Oxford was um, her non-fiction book, Black Ship to Hell. And that was an absolutely extraordinary and milestone book for her. And um, after that, I think her intellectual self-confidence was pretty, pretty unassailable. Um, but in the burglar preface, she takes shots at absolutely every aspect of um, the criticism that, that she felt had been levelled at her. Um, the preface is like a very densely packed fruitcake. And it's arguably far more interesting than the play. I think the play really has dated rather, um, although it has some interesting themes that are still relevant. Um, but in in the preface, um, she she talks about her method, her methodology, you know, her preferred form and design for her plays and her novels, and um, she rebuts this idea that um, I think Jerry Jerry brought up really that. that that she was, she was often accused of being pugnacious and combative. She felt this was not only untrue, but um, something that 
it was de designed to, as it were, hurt a woman who had no business to be either of those things. And she was criticised about her style of literary criticism. Um, she says at one point uh, about becoming a critic, I trust, in short, no judgment but my own. And I trust that to be precisely and strictly my own. This is the source of much of the offence I give as a critic. And she did very much take against um, people who were willing to misconstrue her and willing to say that um, she was not only a woman, she was the wrong kind of woman. She disliked being called a blue stocking, which some people did call her. She wrote in the preface, a monstrous regiment of women is uniquely and universally dreaded, quite as though regiments of men had never behaved monstrously. Blue stocking is a term without a masculine, quite as though men were never intellectual in a plodding and humorless way. <laughs> um, she, she has actually, Jerry mentioned this as well, you know, she has, she has a certain type of humour which not everybody perhaps likes. I like it very much. I do think the King of a Rainy Country is um, funny. Um, uh, and, and I do think that quite a lot of my mother's writing is witty, made with distinction. But um, everywhere she writes, she uses this laser psychological pen penetration. And um, yes, it is intimidating. Uh, it, 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 um, br brilliance often is. And Kate, do you think that's also partly the reason why your mother's work isn't as well known today? And obviously some of the works are coming back into, um, into print, but um, others aren't. Um, yes, I, do. I think, um, I mean, I'm no expert in this, in, in this um, area at all, but I think one of the problems is that she, she was not only ahead of her time, I think to an extent she's ahead of ours as well. And that, that is... Um, a problem of waiting really for, for us to catch up and and the other thing is I, I, I don't know if, the, if if all of you agree with this or, or think it's a bit wild but she writes in such um, an elegant which she uses a very elegant form when she writes whether it's a novel a play um, a, a poem or a piece of criticism uh, um, it's very it's highly structured and some, sometimes mm. very highly wrought she, but she also writes with incredible, um, she's, she, she's very condensed in how she writes. And you have to be prepared to take a fine tool with you when you read her and prize apart um, the, the things she's saying if you want to catch the gist of her. I think that's very true, Kate. She, it's, it's a very formal form of English, but that belies, you know, the fun that's going on underneath and her really innovative arguments. But there isn't a comma out of place, is there? No. Um, and it is, it's beautiful English to read. But, mm. you know, but you, you can't think, oh, this is very formal, um, because very soon... What, what she is talking about is far from formal and really um, exciting and different and innovative, but couched in the most pitch-perfect English prose. Yeah, yeah so that, I, I would just absolutely agree with you, Jerry. And I think perhaps, Jonathan, that's also something that um, maybe you picked up on as well when you were reading. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the, I mean, I agree with what 
both of you or all of you have said that King of a Rainy Country is a, is a really good intro um, to her work. Um, and or I suppose Hackenfeller's Ape as well is, is very accessible. But the she's not something, she, her those books of the 1960s, I suppose The Finishing Touch is very easy to read, but some of the other novels and definitely the non-fictionists are not something you can read with the radio on and your phone open with Twitter at the same time. You do need <laughs> to give your attention to it. Um, and it, not a comma is out of place, but also words are used in their, often their second or third meaning in the dictionary. So she's, mm -hmm. she uses words correctly, but not, but she uses the words that she wants to use to get the meaning that she wants. And an editor could have said, you could say the same thing in an easier way. And I would not choose to be that editor to say that <laughs> to her. Um, Good choice, and, Jonathan. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I, 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 I totally take what Kate says about her, her anger at this kind of accusation of being a blue stocking. And um, my discovery of Bridget Brophy as an author has been part of my personal reading journey into giving full credence to writers like Mansfield and Muriel Spark and Iris Murdoch and turning, you know, I, until I was 25, I'd mostly read male novelists. And um, Bridget Brophy has been part of my discovery that these women, who I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to sit at a, a, a London salon dinner party Hampstead uh, event chatting away to are producing work of incredible power um, and that they should be respected and uh, you know celebrated for that rather than for um, you know their their personae as, uh, as a particular kind of novelist. Um, I've got um, in fact I I've got a little piece from the snowball that um, I was going to read. Miles would now be a, a good that opportunity would be wonderful. to do yeah, that. I think so. yeah. uh, and in fact, I've changed the bit that I was going to read. I was going to read um, the opening because I just find it very difficult to decide which bit to read because it's um, it's a book that you have to take as a whole. You and the style is at times so dense that a little bit of it can be difficult to get into. I was going to read the opening because I thought that was easy, but I've decided to read. Um, a page and a half towards the end of the book, which is a sex scene. And in fact, the uh, the essay that I've contributed to um, Jerry and Richard's uh, academic book about Brophy is about the way that she writes about sex. And I think that this is shows brilliantly the intelligence that she brings to all aspects of human life when she writes about them. Uh, and so this is three paragraphs about a man and a woman having sex. Then his head plunged and his face was lost to her. She lost the wish to see it, the memory even that it existed in the response of her sensations to his labouring body, until she suddenly emerged at the end of the same arc of sensations which had begun with the flutter of his laugh and of his body to the knowledge that her sensations had passed the point up to which she was free to go back on them, and that she was now free to have thoughts again, since her voyage to pleasure was from now on involuntary. Having only to wait, she 
or some part of her, perhaps her hand on his head, perhaps her mouth on his shoulder, convulsively, repetitively, and in the end she felt abrasively caressed his body. It was done with the mere idleness of excited yet reluctant impatience, a musician soaring at the unending rhythms of Bach, as though by digging into his flesh, by pitting him, her fingers or teeth could actually lay hold of the paradox, whereby so much thought and strategy in the vertical world went towards manoeuvring into this horizontal situation where pleasure consisted in something being imposed, in being carried beyond the point of no return, in suffering an act as unwilled as sneezing, falling asleep or dying. Suffering, sobbing, swelling, sawing, sweating, her body was at last convulsed by the wave that broke inside it. And the image which was dashed up on the walls of her mind and deposited like droplets there, distinct but quite passive, was of the Rococo cartouche which broke everlastingly over the walls of Anne's bedroom, perpetually but without moisture drenching the white satin with drops like drops of glycerin or sweat. Anna lay listening bodily to her after sensations. An intense, deep-buried throbbing shook the lower part of her body as sobbing might have shaken the upper. Indeed, these throbs seemed to her an exact counterpoint and antonym to sobs. They made an outburst, a shower of pleasure, the opposite of a storm of weeping. In a storm of weeping, there would have been, as in all storms, a wry warmth and happiness, if only for the relief and release. And equally, in this most intense, least voluntary and therefore most death-imagining of pleasures, there was, and also for the release, a wry sadness. I mean, there's, there's, there's no attempt to be erotic in that, but what there is is an attempt to really, really think about what our brains and what our bodies are doing when, you know, when, when that is happening to us or when we are doing that. And that, that's really what I love about her is that she just digs and digs and digs down below what is expected of a particular piece of prose or a particular scene or a particular character and really gets to something that is psychologically illuminating. I think that's interesting, Jonathan, because um, one of the critics um, said uh, sneeringly of the snowball um, dismissively really or sneeringly um something about anna's anna's uh, two-page orgasm mm. uh, you know <laughs> quite quite as though it was a piece of pornography yeah. and it's so far from that and it's so it is so intelligent and it really goes to the heart i think of how my mother experienced the world because she just was so cerebral i've called it i'm sure there are better words you know but she 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 had this natural way of looking at herself and therefore at others in, in this particularly um, psychologically astute way that, that was, was not afraid to, to say what was what. Mm. Absolutely. And I mean, the other thing that I talk about in, in, in the essay is some of her criticism. I, I try to find everything that she'd written about uh, sex in literature, and she is absolutely uh, thumpingly um, negative towards, uh, you know, Henry Miller and and Hemingway and Kingsley Amis and people like that for the fact that they don't actually think about what they're writing about. They just have their characters 
shag each other with with no actual thought about what is involved in uh, in the act or anything. So the idea that someone might have accused her of writing dirty books and that, that they might have been thinking about this, I find you know just repellent and repulsive and yeah. and and yeah. and ignorant. Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree. And it, and it encapsulates also her, her primary interests as well. Mozart, sex, mm. death and, 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 and pitch perfect prose, as you were saying. Yeah, it's um, but it needs to be read there. slowly. You can't you can't you can't race through it. No, it's, it's um, that's certainly a, a novel to be savoured. Whereas I think so, like, as you say, Hackenfellow's Ape and perhaps King of a Rainy Country, a bit a bit more, um, a bit more quick witted, maybe a romp. I'm not sure. What would people think? Um, I I think she described rightly the uh, the snowball as her masterpiece. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote a letter to a friend um, in which she simply said, when she you know because she just recently completed the book, the, the the new book has turned out to be a masterpiece, and, and it almost surprised her. I think, and and I really like that idea because you 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 almost wonder if she 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 didn't sort of come across the book fully formed uh, and all she had to do was sort of excavate it and mm. she very much she very much wrote in um an intense frenzy and uh, you know i have letters uh, from my father to her reminding her to eat uh, when he was away from home you know you must eat because she you know once once involved um in a in a, a, a sort of intellectually frenetic way um, she would just go on and on and on writing until the thing was out and I, I think there's I, I think there's some of that um, sort of immediacy and excitement as you know coupled with her usual um, intellectual slant on do you, do you think we might do you think people might say that it's the most intense um, of her novels um, and and the most perfect in a way um, I mean that sex scene is quite famous as far as you know so far as anything um, Bridget wrote is fa is celebrated because of the of the way that she describes the orgasm um, but uh, to me that the that that piece of prose is so perfect in every way and the analogies that are brought to bear on it um, the the way that it's written um, it, it it's it confounds you I think uh, as a reader but at the same time, you know exactly what is going on, but you're taken on a journey that is so different from the one that you that you expect to be on or the one that any other writer other than Brophy would have taken you on. And I think that's her genius, isn't it? And that's the her originality as a fiction writer is that she takes you on journeys that no other author really would think of taking you on. Sorry, just to say, I think that's so true about the uniqueness, the originality, the, the going places where um, another novelist might take you to to a rather obvious destination. Um, mm. from, you know, I think Jerry has it absolutely right. Yeah. But the other thing I'd say is that um, I'm, I think this is her masterpiece, um, but she does the same for sex for a man in flesh. And the, the writing uh, in flesh where, where Marcus... Uh, has sex with Nancy for the first time on their honeymoon is just the best description of what sex is like from a male point of view. Heterosexual sex uh, is like from a male point of view that I think I've ever read. Um, and so th that comes from 
not just intelligence, but also imagination as well. Yes. Um, and she she shows that she's not just writing about herself; she's writing about all of us. Um, so I think I think the snowball is is a is I'm not going to say it's a perfect work of art, and probably my favourite bit of all her writing is the last section of the King of a Rainy Country, um, part three of that set in in Venice, which is only about sixty pages, but it seems to contain an entire opera inside it and has got so much uh, I mean it's the King of Rainy Country is a very funny book it's got that sort of down at heel gutter bohemianism in the first mm. part it's got that sort of yeah. comic road trip with the comical Americans in the second part but it's and I, I think the first time I read it I was thinking oh, well this is fair enough this is quite funny I'm laughing I'm, I'm finding it it's a little bit familiar but when you come to that third part and the real sense of aching uh emotion and loss that's involved in what happens in the third part and there are there are elements of that from a from a dramatic point of view the the second time she buys a newspaper i can't say anymore because it'll be a spoiler but that, you know that that is a moment that in any novel is such an acute little uh little gesture towards human behavior and psychology you buy a newspaper you see some news in it you're shocked you throw it away and two hours later, you buy another copy of the newspaper just because you can't believe it. Um, bits like that, as a novelist, I just am in awe of. Uh, and I think that, that is, that is her, that's my favourite bit of all her writing. Um, and The Snowball is my favourite novel of hers. And it's interesting, I think, as well, that um, The Snowball comes at the end of quite a, 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 a sequence of novels that come out quite rapidly, one after the other. And then there's quite a long gap before um, In Transit. And she, I mean, also 1962, Black Ship to Hell, 1964, yep. Mozart the Dramatist, which I, I mean, I think of those as being sort of twinned books. Mozart the Dramatist is, is her view of the world in a positive sense, and Black Ship to Hell is her psychological uh, analysis of human behaviour from a pessimistic point of view. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that means that in three years she published three intense, slim novels and two substantial non-fiction works. Um, and I maybe, I, I don't know if Kate can tell us any more about this, maybe that just took it out of her. And that's partly why there was a, there was a, uh, a gap. You know, five years is, from a novelist's point of view, that's not a, um, you know, that's not 15 years. That's not a sort of, oh, what's happened to her? It's, it, only, it only looks like a long gap because of what she produced before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I'm ashamed to say, but I, I do know that she was constantly doing something and one has to factor in, which we've not had time to discuss, her um, activism, her, <laughs> you know, her involvement on, on many, many um, issues of the day. Um, uh, you know, in the newspapers, on the television, on the radio, and so on, and um, she really was indefatigable. And um, so m maybe she turned her attention more to those. I, th I those think that things. I think that's really demonstrated, isn't it, in the the, um, the in the book arising out of the conference that Professor Richard Canning held in 2015 at the University of Northampton, and the delegates there, um, and the subsequent publication of, the, of, of our book, because we've been discussing briefly, haven't we, as a literary critic and as a novelist. But mm -hmm. in that book, um, as I say, I don't claim to be a Brophy expert at all, and it was um, 
you know, for me, it was a real privilege to help edit this volume. But to come at Brophy, uh, from my point of view, from, a lit from, from, from literature, to then see these wonderful, all the, the activism that she was involved with, um, the, uh, her animal rights um, activism, her campaigning for uh, against animal, you know, vivisection, against animal cruelty, um, against meat eating, um, and the um, the right that wonderful uh, essay that she wrote, which is I think also in Don't Never Forget, which is contains some just wonderful stuff. Um, that essay, The Rights of Animals, um, which has this you know just searingly um, visual image of you know when she says imagine yourself um, on the full a human being on the fourth floor of a, of a building and you cast down um, a line with a hook on the end that's got food on it and you know a passerby walks by and you hook them and then you reel them up and then you bash them over the head and then you eat them she said because that's what we do every day with fish mm. you know and but I mean it's 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 again so ahead of her time. I mean, that's shocking even today. I mean, there was a hell of a lot more vegetarians and vegans than there were in the early 1960s. But there she was at the forefront of that. Um, and then, you know, public uh, the PLR, the uh, public lending right, this, this idea that, that authors might actually get paid if you borrow one of their books from a library, which I know um, she campaigned vociferously for. But there was so much. This 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 volume, which is published by Edinburgh University Press, just to give it a little plug, mm. Bridget Brophy, avant-garde writer, critic, and activist, that I was so fortunate to be invited by um, Professor Canning to um, be a part of, really does bring all those aspects of her life and her career, not just as a novelist and a critic but as um, an activist in so many different areas. And she touched so many people's lives. One of my favorite uh, pieces in the whole book, is not so much about her activism, but it's about, um, it's called A Letter to Bridget. And it, it's written by um, uh, a young man called Rodden Hill at the time, when he first met her, who for, she, it was as if she gave him the authority to be gay, to be who he was to understand himself. And he wrote this letter for our book, which we published saying, this is the letter that I wanted to write to you, but never had the courage to. I mean, he did thank her and, she, and he received a postcard back, which is you know, a great treasure of his, but it was so poignant and so moving. And this is how she touched people's lives in so many different ways. Yep, I think that's true, Jerry. And, uh... Uh, it makes me feel very proud of her, actually, and also very grateful to you and to Jonathan and Miles, you know, who help promote her legacy because her legacy is actually intact. It just needs uh, presenting to people, it, and uh, and and then at least you know they would have the choice whether to go into it or disregard it. And which I'm hoping, I, I, as I understand it. Faber, who have been doing some of her novels as Faber Finds, are producing a new, uh, you know, genuine edition, as in, you know, bookshop edition of The Snowball, which in their catalogue is slated for November. I've no idea if um, COVID has 
had any impact on that, but that's something that I'm very much looking forward to as a as the next step in the you know the continuing um, trophy. Yes. yes, exactly. Um, yeah, as far as I know, um, it's coming out on da -da, the fifth of November. Mm -hmm. So there will be fireworks. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, the, this kind of go, go, goes along with the um, the first um, ever collection of. Uh, academic work on on Brophy that um, Jerry's obviously just just talked about, as well as some more um, some other work that's just come out on Brophy and animal rights. So there's um, a real sense, I think, of ground a groundswell that's building um, for um, for Brophy's work in, in, across the spectrum, not just the not just the fiction, which is, as we have been discussing um, is brilliant, but um, across everything, all, all the work that she did, whether it be um, art exhibitions, um, campaigning, activism. Or um, critical writing. So uh, I you could do, sorry, you could do, you could. Do, I hope somebody is is thinking about a, a new edition or a sort of collected nonfiction, um, because as you know, as Jerry has pointed out, her literary criticism is completely up to date and has not dated one iota, and would be useful um, for us to read now and her journalism as well. So that is as much. Uh, novels don't necessarily go out of date, and we think about new editions of fiction all the time but uh it, the journalism and the, and the criticism as well uh, deserves to be widely read beyond people picking it up second hand absolutely yeah so um as we come towards the end of our um discussion uh kate I, I think the last the last word should be yours really um what would you like to see happen um I think it, I, I think actually to be quite candid, I think it's time we stop thinking about her as neglected, even though patently she is. But you know, um, to keep saying that she's neglected is possibly and um, slightly too negative. She has a fantastic legacy. People are denying themselves if they don't, um, you know, avail themselves of it. And um, so, you know, I, I feel quite positive, and I feel, um, yeah, all strength to Brophy. And when people ask me. Why is Bridget Brophy's writing so good? I have always wanted to say it's her economy, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and in that, I think we are all um, very much in agreement. So my thanks to um, to Jerry, to Jonathan, and to uh, and especially to Kate for joining us today. And um, next time on the podcast, um, we'll be discussing. Uh, Murdoch and politics. So I'm sure you're looking forward to that one. So my thanks to my guests and my thanks to everybody for listening.